0: So if if next week is answering the question, who could or should your friends be, tonight in this passage is about who should you be a friend to. Does that make sense, the difference? Next week, who should my friends be? Tonight, who can I be a friend to? Uh, And uh, what we'll see also is what friends do. Three things. Friends see. They see. It seems simple. Friends suffer and they stay. Let's kind of combine. So friends see, they suffer, and they stay. And then at the end, uh, I anticipate so many objections in your mind and in your hearts of what we're going to talk about. I wanted the last few minutes of tonight's message just to be kind of picking apart a few objections that were in my heart as I prepared this, and I imagine will be in your heart too. Questions like, are you kidding me? Like, God really expects me to do that with the people around me? And so uh, let's keep that in mind as we read this. But why don't you go ahead and stand up? We'll read the passage and we will get started. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. And he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to them, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your strength, all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to them, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. But he, a lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And just who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and he saw him, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went up to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two days' wages, and he gave it to the innkeeper, and he said, He said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I'll be paying when I get back. Jesus is now turning back to the lawyer. Hey, lawyer, which of these three, the Levite, the priest, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor or a friend to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, You go and do that <laughs> likewise. Let's pray. Father the, word, the last words we just said, I'm not sure if there's been more challenging words spoken in your word. Go and do likewise. Uh, go and love in such a costly and sacrificial way. Go and befriend. Go and see. Go and suffer. Go and stick around. Um, Daniel and Morgan alluded to this earlier, and I prayed as well. There are certain things, Father, that you must do in us, and for us. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that we can be explained into or persuaded into or taught into or guilted into. You, by your Spirit, have to come and put it in us and draw it out of us. And so we pray that you would transform us tonight, that the result of tonight would be you helping us to love our neighbors and to love you better. We ask this in Christ's name. And for his glory, amen. So, when I was in college, uh, this book, Blue Light Jazz, was huge. Um, it's written by a guy named Donald Miller, who's kind of a hippie ish slash granola ish Christian, who lives in Portland, Oregon, or at least he used to. And uh, everybody was reading this book, everybody was talking about it, and I had just become a Christian, and so I read it too, it was really helpful to me. And I wanted to read you a page out of this book, because this is Donald Miller describing what it was like, for better and for worse, the year that he lived with five other guys in the same house. And he's describing how that was one of the most amazing experiences of his life, uh, always having best friends around sat on the front porch watching traffic go by, talking about life, Um, but also how hard it was for, for, for Don Miller because he doesn't like it when there's tons of people around all the time. This is his description of his friendships that year in that house and what made it difficult. When you live on your own for years, you begin to think that the world belongs to you. You begin to think that all space is your space and all time is your time. It's like in that movie about a boy where Hugh Grant's character believes that life is a play about himself. That all the other characters are only acting minor roles in a story that centers around him. My life felt like that. Life was a story about me because I was in every scene. In fact, I was the only one who was in every single scene. I was everywhere I went. If somebody walked into my scene, it would frustrate me because they were disrupting the general theme of the play, namely my own comfort or glory. Other people were flat characters in my movie, lifeless characters. Sometimes I would have scenes with them, uh, dialogue, and they would speak their lines and I would speak my lines. But the movie, the grand movie stretching from Adam all the way to the Antichrist was all about me. I wouldn't have told you that at the time. But that's the way that I lived. Tuck was one of my best friends when he moved in. He's still one of my best friends, but for a while I wanted to kill him. He didn't understand that life was a movie about me. Nobody told him. (laughs) So he would knock on my door while I was reading and come in and sit down on a chair opposite of me. And he would want to talk. And he would want to hear all about my day. And I couldn't believe it. The audacity to come into my room, my soundstage, and interrupt the obvious flow of the story with questions about how I'm doing. So I would give Tuck little signals that I didn't want to talk, like eye rolls or short answers to his questions, as all of you think about your mothers right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I would stare in space so that he thought I was crazy or I would snore so that he'd think I'd fallen asleep. I think I hurt his feelings. He would get really frustrated with me, go upstairs and wonder why I was acting that way. And he only did this a few times before he dismissed me as a jerk. And I almost lost that friendship, to be honest. Here's the punchline. Living in community made me realize one of my faults. I was addicted to myself. All I thought about was myself. The only thing I really cared about was myself. I had very little concept of love or sacrifice or giving And I discovered that my mind is like a radio that picks up only one station, the one that plays me, K-D-O-N, all dawn, all the time. Can you relate to that? Those of you living in houses had a quick nod to that, houses with other people, but can you relate to life is a movie all about you, or that your life is one where you're tuned into one radio station and it's K B E N? All Ben all the time. Uh, Kay, Ray. Anybody with a first syllable name? <laughs> You're under the bus now. Uh, K, Chris, all Chris all the time. Can you relate to that? And, and can you relate to the, the collisions like we talked about last week that happens when two people, each tuned in to their own station, walk into the same room? And your music is drowning out my story, and so I turn up the volume on mine and you're like, I can't focus on me. There's, this is so noisy. And you turn up the volume on yours, and noise results, and neither of us can be in the same room anymore together. The reason I share that story, and I thought this chapter from Blue Light Jazz is so fitting to get us ready for this passage to take us apart, uh, is this reason. This is a story that we just read about a lawyer who is tuned in to himself And only himself. Or to use the movie metaphor, this is a picture of a man who life was a movie about this man. And he made all of his friendships, all of his relationships, all of his encounters all about himself. How do you know that? How do you know I'm not just making a convenient analogy here? Luke tells us in verse 25, he says, The reason this lawyer ever even approached Jesus wasn't because he wanted to get to know Jesus wasn't because he was interested in Jesus or wanted to befriend him or wanted to tune in to what Jesus was saying. What's he say in verse 25? The reason the lawyer starts talking was to put Jesus to the test. He's wanting to look good in the eyes of his friends, and he's wanting Jesus to look bad. He's testing him. He's not curious about the answer. Verse 29, Luke also tells us this. But he, the lawyer, his second question is also motivated By himself and making everything about him. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Jesus, just who is my neighbor? And even asking that question is evidence of him being all about himself. The reason he's asking, who's my neighbor? Who fits in the box of people I have to love? Because there's a ton of people I don't want to love. And I sure hope they don't fit in the box of the people that I have to love. This is a guy who's all about himself. And Jesus in this moment is the director who's saying, cut, that's a wrap, production's over on this little movie. Now the, the hard news is that we are this lawyer, the good news is that God gets you. So your confessions, your conviction that you don't love your friends well, or maybe you don't make friends well, or there's too many people in your life that you ignore and don't move towards to get to know God's not surprised when you come and you confess um, He knows that. Jesus is speaking uh, to us tonight, to people that if you're in Jesus, when God thinks about how well you love your friends and your neighbors, here's the good news. He doesn't think about you. He thinks about Jesus, who loved his friends perfectly. Um, and so as you feel conviction tonight, As we get a little bit deeper into this passage and you realize how far of a gap there is between the way love is portrayed here and the way you and I love our friends or make friends, Um, I want you to think about Jesus, who is your righteousness. Otherwise, you'll do what Morgan said earlier you will learn that you will either lean towards perfectionism and you'll try to get your act together and be a really good lover of people and you'll fail miserably every time. Or, you will so narrowly define what love is that conveniently you reach the bar every time. And you'll become a Pharisee or a lawyer just like this guy. And so, do you want to tune into what Jesus is saying? Do we want to kind of turn down the volume right now of us or even tonight being all about ourselves? And you want to tune into what Jesus is saying. That's what he offers you. If you do, we'll find a couple of things from this parable that Jesus makes up to prove a point. The first is that is this that friends. C, you're like, gee, I'm glad I came tonight. This is super deep. But did you catch the repetition in Jesus' parable? Uh, Verse 31, the priest saw the man on the road. What did he do? Verse 32, the Levite saw the man on the road. What did he do? Verse 33, the Samaritan saw the man on the road. What did he do? did he do? This parable is a parable about seeing, and the principle underneath it is that friendship, these unscripted relationships, the people that just seemingly randomly cross your paths, the people sitting next to you this morning and every every Tuesday in your classes, those kind of people, um, friendship begins and blossoms when you see somebody. Now here's, here's what I mean by see, because obviously the priest and Levite both saw with their eyes this guy, because they're like, excuse me, you're blocking the road, gotta get by. They passed by the other side. They saw this man so that they could avoid him, but they didn't see him like the Samaritans saw him. So obviously we're talking about a, a deeper kind of seeing than just, I see you with my eyes. The kind of seeing that he's talking about is a seeing people Think about tonight. Let's not be abstract. Look at the people in the room with you tonight, some of whom you know, some of whom you don't. Seeing that leads to knowing, knowing that leads to caring. So think about who you saw when you came in tonight and who was invisible to you and why some were invisible and some were seen. Uh, There's a guy named Stephen Garber who wrote a book. I'll leave it at that. And uh, in his book, he says this. Always and everywhere, here is the challenge we have as human beings. Can we know and love the world at the very same time? This is like, can you walk and chew gum? Can you know the world and love it at the same time? He goes on with his questions. Knowing its glories and its shames, can we still choose to love what we know? Is there any more task more difficult than that? Think it through. From roommates to parents to siblings to friends, once you begin to really know what a person is like, can you still love them? If you're dating someone, engaged to someone, married to someone, this question, the volume on this question has really turned up. Can you know somebody and still love them? Or the question we put on Facebook today, can you know someone, or given what you know about a person, can you love them? And so seeing a person means paying attention to them in a way that you care to know them. <clears throat> okay, but his question is still on the table. Given what you know of the people around you, the people that God has, somehow he keeps crossing your path with these people. They're your classmates, they're your sorority sisters, your fraternity brothers. They're the people who live with you, they're the people on ministry team, they're the people in your Bible study, they're the people sitting next to you tonight. Given what you know of them, can you love them, and what will you do? Do you see them in a way that you know them and want to get to know them? So with this definition of seeing, does it make more sense why the Levite and the priest don't see this guy? If anything, they see him as an obstacle or an inconvenience. Really quickly to connect this to last week when we were talking about what causes collisions and fights with us. What makes people blind? Or sorry, what makes people invisible to us? What makes you a person that I look right through? You're not important to me. You don't even kind of register in my desire to get to know you. How does that happen? For these guys, I don't know exactly what it was for the priest and the Levite. That's not the point of Luke's story. So let's imagine. Was it efficiency that they most loved? These guys are all on the interstate of the day. That's what the road to Jericho to Jerusalem was. Um, did they not have time? Were they busy? They had some place to be? So they're like, I, there's no way I could possibly, this. this guy is like, whoa, I mean, someone called 911, I don't have time to deal with this. And they walk off because they were so in love with where they had to be and what they had to do, they didn't have any love left for the people God put in unscripted ways right in the middle of their path. Maybe it was their reputation, probably it was their reputation, these religious figures, this pastor and this worship leader. you're ugly, I'm clean, I don't want your mess to get on me, or I don't want my reputation to suffer because I'm seen in a long-term way, helping you or relating to you. Productivity, I don't have time to help you. Comfort, I've got enough on my plate, I don't need more stress in my life. Whatever our hearts become attached to also make other people become blind if they get in between me and what I most love. Make Make sense? That's just a little side point to kind of connect how last week plays into this week and our friendships. So really quick before we push on any further, what would it look like for us to start noticing each other? For us to see each other the way the Samaritans saw this guy? For us to see each other in a way that's different than the way the priest and the Levite saw this guy? I think the first we have to start looking in the mirror and asking hard questions and saying, Do I even want to know other people? Do I even care to get to know them? We're mainly talking about people that you don't know very well, not your best friends, not the people that you come to RUF with, but the people that you kind of still don't know who are here tonight. Do you even care to get to know them? Do you see them? Do they matter? Are they worth your time? Those are the hard mirror questions we have to start at. That's why I started by saying we are this longer. Um, if love of neighbor, if you being a friend to other people isn't the central motivating factor or, or energy in your life, you're in it for yourself. You're in every relationship for yourself. And so why would you want to get to know someone new? Why would you want to invite that new person with you to this or to that? Why would you want to hang out with them outside of class or outside of UF if it's all about yourself? This leads us to probably the second place we have to go if we want to start noticing people, and that's repentance. That's Jesus. A lot of people in this world have become invisible to me. Give me eyes to see because I'm blind. And praying to be the one who would love to give you eyes to see, the one who fans the flame of your love for other people. And the third thing is this, and this is a little bit more practical, simply moving closer to other people. There's three things that you can do to move closer to another person and see them in a way that you know them. It's knowing the good about them, the hard about them, and the bad about them. The good, the hard, and the bad. Do you know or are you interested in knowing the good about a person? Whether they're a Christian or not, the places where they bear God's image. Unique places where they're glorious, where they're gifted. Or if they are a Christian, where God is at work in their life? That is a great way to get to know the heart and soul and essence of a person. Do you know the good? Do you look for it? Do you scan new people you meet as they're telling you stories? You're getting to know them. Are you looking? Are you hunting for the good? In the same way, are you looking and listening and seeing the heart in their life? If you haven't gotten to the point in your life where you've realized that everybody's life is hard and confusing, hopefully I can get you there tonight just by telling you that. Everybody's life is hard and confusing. The person that we envy and covet their life and their experiences, their life is hard and confusing. Can we listen and see the suffering, the trials, the confusions, the weakness, the difficulty as we get to know people? As you get to know the person sitting next to you in class, as you get to know your coworkers, are you listening for the good, for the hard? And are you listening and watching and looking for the bad? It's significant that this is number three and not number one. Are you tender and patient with them because they're as much of a sinner and a fool as you and I are? Are you understanding of them when they fall because you fall too? Um, Or do your expectations of them... Pretend like they're not a sinner and then they're never going to let you down and so you're devastated when you do. Ways that we can see each other instead of seeing through each other is to look for the good, the bad, and the hard. That's what it means to move closer to a person in an intentional way. And so if you care to see people around you and know them, then the question becomes what will you do with what you know? Is it the more you find out about a person, the more you want to run away? Or is it the more that you know a person, the more you want to stay? The second thing friends do in our second and final point is um, friends suffer and friends stay. Here's what I mean by that. The Samaritan doesn't leave his interaction with this guy at, let's talk about the weather, let's talk about where you're from or what your major is. He presses in and he presses deeper. And so he takes care of this guy in such a customized and careful and thoughtful way. This new person who was a stranger and is now his friend—not because they're compatible, not because they have similar hobbies—they're he's a friend because the Samaritan knows at my identity, at my core, I am a friend. And so when I meet other people, I befriend them because I am a friend. I am a neighbor. He loves this guy in such a customized and careful way that the guy's suffering becomes his suffering. This predicament that used to just be this guy in the ditch has now become a problem for the Samaritan. Where do we see that in the passage? Or am I making this up too? You see it in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this guy was and when he saw him, in the way we've talked about He had compassion. Um, Some of you have taken Latin before. You know what the word compassion means. Calm means with passion. I'm I'm anglicizing these terms. Calm means with. Passion means suffering or feeling or hurting. Compassion means I suffer for you. I feel with you. I hurt with you. Compassion is a beautiful word. It's how God describes himself. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in steadfast love. A God who suffers for his people. A God who feels with his people. The Samaritan saw this man and had compassion. He suffered for and with this guy, he was willing to be inconvenienced. He was willing to be affected. He was willing to go out of his way. And so the suffering started to spill from the guy in the ditch to him, which is what we see the Samaritan doing, which is showing compassion. There's, there's a couple of stages of his compassion. I think this is helpful for us to think about with our friendships. The first kind of stage of his care for this guy is he took care of his urgent needs, what, what, immediately, what needs to be done now? He bound up his wounds. This could look like for us, giving someone a ride, sharing with them a meal, or giving them money for a meal, hanging out with that lonely person who doesn't know anybody, helping someone on their engineering homework. The second stage of his care, that, that immediate, urgent care, matured into more of a long-term, steady care. It looks like in the passage, he puts him on his animal, and takes him to an end and begins to bring other people into the process of caring for this guy, which for us with those same examples could look like getting that person who needs a ride a bus pass or a bunch of bus passes or money for Uber or a taxi, going grocery shopping with the person who doesn't have food, bringing that lonely friend to RUF with you so they begin to meet other people, and it's not all on you. Connecting or teaching that engineering classmate who doesn't know a lot of the concepts so that he can take those tools with him to all of the future assignments. Number three, the third and final stage of his care for this guy was helping this guy get back on his feet. And this was kind of an open-ended stage of care for his friend, his new friend. He gave him two days' wages to take care of him. He put the innkeeper in charge of him, and he came back. For us, in those same examples, helping that person put together a better resume so they can get a job and earn money for themselves, or teaching them how you've worked your way through career fairs and resume building and job outreach so that they can learn how to do it and they can learn how to get a job. With the other ones, it means connecting that lonely person that you're bringing to RUF with other people inviting them to something where they're going to build relationships with others. Just like this guy brought in the innkeeper to help, to help bear the load, you begin to bring other people into your care of this friend to help bear the load and for this person to get to know other people. Pause for a second and ask yourself, what will this cost you if you do this? The more I talk, is it like uh, the price tag on having friends and loving people keeps getting higher and higher? And you're like, I don't get that much money in my accounts. Walk out the door. This is why I said I wanted to talk about a few objections before we finish. The first objection I thought about as I was preparing this and, and this passage was undoing me and putting me back together was this. Are you kidding me? There's 17,000 people on this campus alone. And you're saying that God wants you to be a neighbor or a friend to all of them. That's impossible. That is not what this passage is saying. This passage is realistic. Uh, there's There's a few clues to that. The people that you do need to be alert to, to befriend, to love, to see, to know, are the people that God regularly crosses your path with. That's also what's in common with each of these three men. They encountered... This potential friend on the way, when they came to the place where this guy was, God literally dumped an obstacle right in the middle of their way, and only one of these three men saw this guy as a person and not an obstacle. Look at your most traveled places at work, at school, in your program, at RUF, whatever else you do. Who are the people that keep popping up? Those are the places you start to proactively befriend and love. And build these relationships with? Did you know that Jesus actually expects you and wants you and prays for you to get to know the people sitting on your row? He really does. Did you know that he's not okay with a room full of people being strangers? He really isn't. This doesn't matter to him. That's why he says on every page, we are to know one another. We are to be united in the spirit with one another. What are the implications for you, if that is true, and if Jesus wants that uh, from us? The second objection I thought of when I'm getting this ready is, I don't have time for school and work and life if I do what you're saying. God has given me multiple layers of responsibilities. I've got all these different competing things, and I'm busy. Y'all are busy. It's almost midterms. There's a ton going on. How in the world am I supposed to do this without, like, crashing and burning? I think this objection, I see in my own heart what the devil is doing in Genesis 3. He is over-exaggerating the cost of following God, and he's underestimating the grace in following God. He's saying, you could God didn't possibly say don't eat of any tree in the garden, God never said that. But the devil is over-exaggerating the cost, and he's underestimating the blessing, the life, the grace, in obeying God. But I also think seeing other people and suffering with other people as we befriend them doesn't mean you have to quit your job. doesn't mean you have to drop out of school and become a professional friend. That's not the picture Jesus paints here. Here's how we know that. This Samaritan is on his way somewhere, and guess what? He still gets to where he's going. Because he leaves this dude at the end, and he's like, hey, I'll be back. You take care of him until I get back. i got other responsibilities i got to take care of. And so he brings other people in to help him with that. It's getting a little more realistic, right? The other way uh, we know is that, yeah, he gets the innkeeper uh, to be there as well. And um, it's amidst his pressing responsibilities that he is willing to adjust himself and to be inconvenienced for the sake of loving another. It's not like he, he says, oh, well, I had a really important place to be, but I guess God wants me to be here. It's like, no, I gotta be there. So well, I'm leaving you here, but I'm gonna leave some money so that you don't suffer for me having to go and do my other responsibilities. Now, does this stuff cause this guy to suffer? You better believe it, because he's compassionate. You can't call yourself a compassionate person if you've not ever suffered for your friends. The third and final objection I saw in my own heart as I thought about this is, this seems inauthentic. This isn't genuine. You're, you're like commanding us to go and love all of these people and to befriend them. Like how robotic. Like won't they be offended that I'm not really interested in them and I didn't have this gravitational pull like, oh, I want to get to know you and love you. But I'm just going to start loving them before I have a feeling of loving them. Hopefully by now you've come across C.S. Lewis's brilliant response to this when he says, don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. You'll love for your neighbor." Act as if you did. As soon as we do, we find one of life's great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love somebody, you will presently come to love them. When you start doing love is when you start feeling love. It's the same with our friends. It's the same in dating. It's the same in marriage. It's the same with your kids one day when you have them. When you love, when you do love, you feel love. Friendship is a hill, not a hole. It's not something you fall into and gravity just pulls you. It's like autopilot. I don't have to do any work. I don't have to think. I don't have to plan. Friendship is a hill. You have to climb it with intention, with thought. with sacrifice. It takes energy. We end with Jesus. How in the world can you go and do likewise? It's a tall order. The reason you can go and do likewise is because Jesus has loved his neighbor, on your behalf. And so if you're a Christian, you have loved your neighbors perfectly. That righteousness belongs to you. Your slate isn't just clean, but it is stocked to infinity with loving well. Now, with that record, you get to learn how to do it in practice. That's why this parable is here. And the way that you get propelled out into doing that is knowing that Jesus is the Samar- Jesus is the Samaritan. He is the neighbor. He is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is the one who sees you, the one who knows you, the one who has compassion on you, the one who suffers for you, the one who's stuck around and will stick around. He is the one who provides for your urgent needs, your more, more intermediate needs, and he's the one who stays and comes back for your long-term needs. He is the one David read about earlier who gave away all that you might be free from yourself like we started talking about tonight. That you might be free to make friends, love the people sitting in the room tonight, and the people all over this campus. Let's pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, we do pray that you will make this come true in us. You desire this for us far more than we do. And that's our hope because you will get your way. But we want to participate with you as you renew us, as we are new creations. And so we pray that uh, we would, um, you would give us willing and yielded hearts to do that. We pray that we would have the joy of um, seeing other people come back to life uh, because of us giving away our lives for their sake. We ask this in your name.